So, when I was growing up in the holler, our neighbor had an old hound dog. Now, I don't know what this old hound dog's past was, but his present was this. His owner had put a chain around his neck, and he had attached that chain to the clothesline so that the dog could run back and forth along the clothesline. But when the dog got to the end of the clothesline and got to the end of the chain, he could go no further. Now, my brothers and I and our neighbors, we felt sorry for that old hound dog because he was a nice dog. He was a good dog. And we knew that all that dog wanted was to come and run and play with us in the field. And so we could see that old hound dog pulling and straining at that chain to get free to come and be with us. But he couldn't. And we didn't dare release him because, well, holler etiquette says you can't unhook the neighbor's hound dog from the clothesline. So we didn't. Now, there's not a happy ending to that story. That old hound dog stayed chained up. But the good news is that Bible etiquette is different. And over and over in the Word of God, we we read stories about the unhooking of chains. Now, please don't hear me saying, you ain't nothing but a hound dog. No. But if the chain fits, wear it. I think a lot of us are wearing chains, and one chain in particular that a lot of us wear is the chain of our past, and that chain allows us to go so far but no further. I think we know where we want to go. I think we know where we want to be. I think we know where we would love to just run with Jesus, but our past keeps us from going there with him. So let me just say that that is not gospel health. People who are healthy in the gospel are enabled by the Lord to forget the past, to be free from it, and to press on toward the future. So that should be the goal that we have for our lives this morning. That the Lord would give us the ability to to forget the past and press on with him into the future. That's what I hope he'll accomplish in us and through us as we come to his word this morning. It's from Philippians chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you and ask you to open to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12. And when you found that, if you would please stand. We love the word of the Lord here. We honor it. And so we stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Philippians chapter 3, beginning In verse 12, the Apostle Paul writes, Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize, For which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you again for your word. 
We pray now that the truth that is your word would sound forth from this place, from this pulpit. And Lord, what goes forth that is your truth, I ask, Spirit of God, that you would join with that truth so that great transformation takes place in our hearts, so that great freedom is experienced among us because of the reality of the gospel, so that we indeed are people who can move forward with you to do the things that you've called us to do. This is our prayer that we ask now in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. I'm confident that all of us here have experienced the hold, the hold that our past can have on us. We revisit the past very often, particularly those parts of our pasts that we regret. The Apostle Paul in in Romans chapter 6 sums it up this way, when, when you were slaves to sin, you were free from the obligation to do right. And that's the past for many of us. And what was the result? You are now ashamed of the things you used to do. And so it's a very common experience for us to be ashamed of our pasts, the things that we've done, the things in which we have participated, the people we've hurt. Well, the Apostle Paul knows the power Of the past. And in his own life, he had to address his own past in order to move forward into the future. And so, in this passage from Philippians that we've just read, you can kind of feel the tension, as Paul writes, between the past and the future, between what lies behind him and between what lies ahead of him. And you can sense the power that the past could have over Paul to thwart his future. Well, What is the future for Paul? Look in the second part of verse 12. Paul writes there, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. So so here's his future. Now we of course know when it was that the Lord Jesus took hold of Paul. We know that story very well. It happened on the road to Damascus. You remember the the light flashed from heaven and, and Paul fell to the ground And he heard Jesus call to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul responded, who are you, Lord? And and Jesus said, I'm Jesus who you are persecuting. Now get up and go to the city and you will be told what you must do. So Paul does just that. He goes into the city of Damascus. And at that point, we discover what it is for which the Lord took hold of Paul. The Lord had appeared also to a man named Ananias. And he spoke to Ananias about Paul, and he said, This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. This is what Jesus took hold of Paul to do. And Paul never forgets this what, this calling, his future. So in Acts chapter 26... Near the end of that book and very near the end of Paul's ministry, he adds more to that call of Jesus. And he says that Jesus said to him, I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. 
So when Paul writes here, Philippians chapter 3, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Paul has no doubt why the Lord Jesus took hold of him. He has no doubt why it is that Jesus set him free. Paul has no doubt about what his future is to be. And it's nothing less than globe-changing, world-changing mission. Now that's a high calling. But all of it is threatened if Paul cannot get beyond his past. A past that could completely overwhelm Paul and sideline him from this high call that God has placed on his life. So let's review Paul's past. Here it is in Paul's own words. He's praying to the Lord. Lord, I replied, these people... Know that when I went from one synagogue to another to imprison them and beat those who believe in you, and when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. In Paul's own words, Acts 26, I used to believe that I ought to do everything I could to oppose the very name of Jesus the Nazarene. Indeed, I did just that in Jerusalem. Authorized by the leading priests, I caused many believers there to be sent to prison. And I cast my vote against them when they were condemned to death. And many times I had them punished in the synagogues to get them to curse Jesus. I was so violently opposed to them that I even chased them down in foreign cities. Not to be insensitive. But literally, Paul could have been the Dylan roof of his day. Entering into gatherings of believers as they met to study the word of God and to pray. And to arrest them or beat them or have them put to death. 1 Timothy 1, Paul writes, Formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and a violent man. This is a trustworthy saying and and full of acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. And finally, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul writes, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so there, in his own words, is Paul's past. These are the memories that line up in procession, to parade through Paul's mind. What, what do you do with a past like that? When the Middle Eastern heat index has been 120 degrees all summer or all day, and you go to bed at night and you're tossing and turning and sweating in the heat, trying to go to sleep, and, and you close your eyes, how do you not see the faces of those that you persecuted or imprisoned, or even killed? How do you not see the faces of the children that you personally made an orphan? How do you keep the past from ruining your future? Paul answers that question in verse 13. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on. So there's the key for Paul, forgetting what is behind, forgetting. This is one of those moments in your life, and you've probably not had very many of them, 
but a moment in your life when grammar is life-changing, says the former English teacher. No kidding. Grammar is so important right here because this word forgetting is a present participle. And a present participle indicates ongoing action. Paul's forgetting isn't a one-time act. It's an ongoing forgetting of what is behind. And so to us, that seems completely counterintuitive. How can you ever forget if ongoing remembering is what renders you from being able to forget? Right? How can you forget if you have to keep remembering to forget? Because in this verse, Paul isn't holding out the hope of some sort of spiritual amnesia that would allow him or us to be totally unaware of our past. Wouldn't that be a blessing, though? If, if we couldn't remember at all, if we could just forget those unsavory parts of our past, but we can't forget them, and neither can Paul. If he had forgotten his past, he would not keep writing about it so many years later. So, so what do we do? How is it that we are to understand this forgetting of which Paul writes in this verse? Well, Paul and, and you and I have to take a lead in this from God himself. And God says this to the prophet Isaiah. This is God speaking. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Clearly, God does not mean that he cannot remember the sins of his people. It isn't as if God shows up in in court one day, and he's in the witness stand, and He's cross-examined. Now, God, can you please explain for us in your own words what it is that your people have done to you? And that God would respond, ah, ah, I just can't remember. I'm, I'm so sorry. No, God is omniscient. He knows all things all the time, all things all the time, known by God, past, present, and future. So we go to Isaiah chapter 38. And we are provided a picture, I think, that will help us understand what this forgetting looks like. Isaiah 38, chapter 17, King Hezekiah is speaking. He says to God, In love you have delivered my life from the pit of destruction, for you have cast all my sins behind your back. You have cast all my sins behind your back. Literally, you have thrown, you have hurled all my sins behind your back. And the word all means there means just that, all. The entirety of them, the wholeness of my sins, thrown, cast behind your back. So if our sins are behind God's back, they are not before his face. If our sins are behind God's back, they are not before his face. If our sins are behind God's back, they are what? Not before his face. And that's good news for us, right? That means God is not looking at our sins. And that's what it means for God to forget the past for which we have sought and been granted forgiveness is behind God's back. And God is not reaching behind him to pull them back and look at them again. 
That's not what God does. He's forgotten them. He's put them behind his back. He's not judging us for them anymore. He's not punishing us for them anymore. He's not bringing them up before his face as a reason that you and I are not worthy. That past, those sins are behind God's back. So what then is before the face of God? Or perhaps I should ask, who then is before the face of God? And the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus, who is always appearing before the Father on our behalf. And that's why we sing songs like, Dressed in His Righteousness Alone, Faultless to Stand Before His Throne. Or, For for God, the just, is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. Please don't think that God is reluctant to pardon you and so that Jesus is appearing before his face begging on your behalf. Please don't have that picture. No, Jesus is beautiful. And the Father delights to look on his Son because Jesus is the beautiful, physical reality of the beautiful plan of salvation that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conceived before the foundation of the world to bring us into an intimate and loving relationship with God. And so when God looks at Jesus before his face, there is always displayed not only the beauty of the gospel plan in prototype, But the beauty of the plan that's been tested and proven, the gospel does work. Thank you. It is effective. Effective. Jesus has secured our forgiveness and our salvation. Now listen. This is where it's very important not only that we have good grammar, but accurate theology. All right? Got to have accurate theology. Because if we don't, we'll always and forever be crippled by our past. Unable to get past it. Unable to fulfill this global purpose that God has for us. And so here it is. Here is the theology that we've got to grasp. What I've said about God forgetting our sins, it's only true because of the obedience of Christ. Okay? It's driving me crazy. The obedience of Christ. And when we talk about the obedience of Christ, there's two aspects of it. So please follow along. There is the passive obedience of Christ, and there is the active obedience of Christ. The passive obedience of Christ, the word passive is taken from the word passion, which means to suffer, and we're familiar with that when we talk about the passion of Of the Christ. However, sometimes we limit the passion of the Christ only to that last week of his life, the last days of his life, where he was beaten and then crucified on the cross. But we have to remember that the entirety of Christ's life on earth was one of suffering. And so his entire life on earth was one of his passive obedience. How can it be other? Because when you think about it, even the very best moments, The very best moments of life on earth, they're marked by sin because the curse of sin is in this world. And so that life is indescribably different from the perfection of heaven 
in which Jesus had always dwelt from all eternity past. And so all of the life of Jesus was one of passive obedience, staying here on earth, suffering here on earth, ultimately dying on the cross. That's Jesus' passive obedience, and it had to be. Jesus had to suffer. He had to pay the penalty of sin. The death that God promised would come if Adam and Eve disobeyed and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that death did come along with other curses. Cursed is the ground because of sin, God says. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground since from it you were taken. For dust you are and to dust you will return. You see, sin carries penalties. When Jesus came to earth, he came to live under the curse of all of this. And all the penalty of sin he took upon himself in his life, and in his death. In this, we get the passive obedience of Christ. We must have it, or we will die. Because if Jesus didn't pay the penalty for sin, you and I are left responsible to pay it, and guess what? We can't pay the price. And so we would all be lost. And so we praise Jesus for his passive obedience. I guess that's true. Do you praise Jesus for his passive obedience? But in addition to the passive obedience of Christ, there's also his active obedience. And that simply means that Jesus actively and perfectly fulfilled all the requirements of God without flaw, without mistake, without error. And even if you and I were to limit those commands to just the Ten Commandments, that you and I can spout off in under one minute, even while we're saying them, we are completely aware that there's not a day that goes by that we don't break one of those commandments, either breaking it in what it prohibits us from doing, we do do, or breaking it in not doing what it, it commands that we are required to do. We can't do it. But Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the requirements without failing, without falling at even one point. This is the active obedience of Christ. And this is what makes Jesus perfectly righteous because he perfectly obeyed. And it is that righteousness that God gives to us. Are you following? So together, between the active obedience and the passive obedience, Jesus has suffered the penalties of sin and he has fulfilled the demands of the law, and we must have both. Now, last week, if you were here, I quoted a bunch of dead theologians. This morning, I want to quote one who's still alive. Points. <laughs> R.C. Sproul, you know him. Renowned theologian, head of Ligonier Ministries. He puts it this way. Jesus not only had to die for our sins, but he had to live for our righteousness. If all Jesus did was die for your sins, that would remove all your guilt, that would leave you sinless in the sight of God, but not righteous. You would be innocent 
but not righteous because you haven't done anything to obey the law of God, which is what righteousness requires. So see, we have to have both, the active and the passive obedience for Christ. Now, come back to Philippians chapter 3 and look up in verse 9. There we find out what Paul wants right now in the present to help him deal with the past and press on to the future. And in verse 9, we read that Paul wants to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. Not having a righteousness of my own. Not having another present participle, right? Ongoing activity. Right now, Paul says in this moment, I do not want a righteousness of my own. Right now, in this moment, I want a righteousness that is from God through faith in Christ. And so there it is, the act of obedience of Christ. Now look in verse 10. Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of, his, of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Like him in his death. The passive obedience of Christ. So Paul like you and I, we depend on both the active and the passive obedience of Christ in the present moment. They are the realities, the full obedience of Christ that will allow us to forget the past and move into God's future for us. They are our only hope for spiritual health. And Paul knows that he must be spiritually healthy if he's going to fulfill the purpose God has for him, to carry the name of Jesus before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel, to open eyes, to turn people from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. Not going to happen if Paul himself is not spiritually happy, healthy and happy. Our ability to be spiritually healthy, to forget the past, and to press on to the future is found in the same place it was found for Paul. The active and the passive obedience of Jesus. Because Jesus was actively and passively obedient, God does hurl your sins behind his back. You get it? It's not just that can't, God can do it. It's that God does do it. Is that good news? And so you've got to ask, who are you or who am I to say otherwise? When we refuse to believe this, we're denying the gospel. And we are dishonoring God who planned the gospel for us. And I know this may sound harsh, but I don't care about your feelings. I mean, I do care about your feelings, but I care a lot more about the truth. And this is the truth. And so to be very blunt with you and very blunt with myself, we have got to get over ourselves. Right? You know, what sins can we list that are worse than Paul's? What guilt could we carry that's worse than the, the, the guilt of Paul? He didn't track down hardened criminals. Innocent lives. Paul so angrily snuffed out. And yet Paul was able to forget. So now look in verse 15. Paul is much kinder than I am. 
He puts it this way. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And so this is Paul's very polite way of saying to us, grow up. If you don't believe these things, then you are still, still a spiritual baby. Wah, wah, wah. Don't be a spiritual baby. Babies can't do anything for themselves. They can't do anything for anyone else. And so Paul said, get out of the cradle. Believe these truths. Or to change the metaphor, get off of the sideline. Paul, with his horrendous past, is not going to sit there, an emotional cripple, crying, woe is me. I'm not worthy. I can't. God would never accept this from me. God would never use me. That's not what Paul says. Again, I don't intend in any way to make light of anyone's struggles in this room right now. Because I know that many people constantly are struggling with their paths, not only what they've done, but what was done to them. And I'm not trying to belittle that. I'm just saying that the only way for any of us to ever win in those struggles and to overcome is with the truth of God's word. And that's why I offer God's truth to you this morning. And of course, these truths are difficult for us to understand, but that doesn't make them untrue. So do this. Tell yourself the truth. Tell yourself the truth and unchain yourself from the clothesline. Forget what is behind God has. Don't look longingly at where you want to be, but can't be because you're pulling and struggling against the chain of the past. What is it we hope from will accomplish by dwelling on the past anyway? Some kind of penance? Lord, if I don't forget the past, if I keep thinking about it, if I never let myself off the hook, then somehow I can make up for it. Forget it. You can't make up for it. And that kind of thinking denies the gospel. Jesus has already paid for it, right? We already read it this morning, already sang it this morning. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. So why say I can't forgive myself? Why not? Jesus has. Do we imagine that we are more sensitive than the Lord? That our our conscience is higher than His? We care so deeply for what we have done that, that it would lack compassion for us to move on? If we believe that, we're just spiritually arrogant. We must not believe that we have a higher morality than Jesus. As if God is wrong to forgive just that easily. It wasn't easy, was it? It cost the life of Christ on the cross. It wasn't easy. And yet, the life of Christ is all that God required for our salvation. I'm sure I'm not even guessing at all the reasons that you and I stay chained to the clothesline. All I know is that we must repent of our sins and move on. And to remind you that repentance isn't just repentance isn't just saying, "Oh, I'm sorry." No, repentance is saying, "This is wrong. I'm sorry. I turn from it, and will strive with all my power not to do it again." We repent and we move on. This is what God desires because that demonstrates that we believe the gospel. 
When we've repented and been forgiven, there's nothing more we can do. There's no reason for us to linger around in the past. We have a lot of work to do with the city. You know it? If you watched the news this week and heard Bethany, we've got a lot of work to do in the world. It's the work the Lord has for us, the gospel work. And you and I have to be healthy in the gospel if we are going to accomplish that work. And what you and I do with our past is a good indication of what we will do in the future. Because if the gospel can't take care of our past, how will we hope for it to take care of our future or for anyone else's? So you and I need to learn to repent and to forget and move on, right? Because either the cross has power or it does not. If it has power, forget and move on. Either Christ took our place or he did not. If he did, forget and move on. Either he bore the wrath of God or he did not. If he did, forget and press on. Either we are forgiven in Christ or we are not. If we are, forget and press on. Press on. Together, us, in the name of Jesus, into this city to open blind eyes, to bring light to dark places, to turn people from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what comfort your word is to us and what comfort your truth is to us. But Lord, only when we believe it by faith and live by it. So Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for Paul's own testimony about his own life. Thank you, Lord, for this good and biblical direction that you speak to us through the pen of Paul. How it is that we deal with our past. How it is that we forget, Lord, not by getting away with it, but by being forgiven for it. You're such a great God. You're so full of grace and mercy to think that you would toss those sins, our sins, behind your back and that never again will you reach behind to reclaim them and to bring them back up before your face, to re-examine them, to think perhaps you've made a mistake. Perhaps you should not have forgiven that. Never, never, Lord, will that happen because of Jesus Christ because of his passive obedience, because of his active obedience. So we thank you and praise you for it. It's difficult for us to believe. So Holy Spirit, we need you to take the truth and to plant it deeply in our hearts so that we can live by your truth, so that we can press forward with your truth, so that we can change the city and the world with the truth of your gospel. Help us do that, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.